I sometimes uh, think that when Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were whisked away into exile under Babylonian oppression, that this psalm, at least one of the psalms, was probably in their minds, one that they learned as young uh, Hebrew boys. And they knew that though they go through the valley of the shadow of death, though they enter into Babylon itself, an oppressive foreign enemy, yet the Lord would be with them, and the Lord would uphold them with the strength of his rod as their good shepherd. And whether in their lifetime or in the life to come, they would again dwell in the house of their God forever and ever. It's a beautiful thing of Daniel's faith, as we see even reflected here in Daniel chapter 6, which I ask you to please turn there with me as well, Daniel chapter 6. And here we come to the last of the historical narratives in the book of Daniel mentioned a number of weeks ago that Daniel's broken up into two parts. The first part, chapters 1 through 6, are historical narratives, ones that are probably very dear to our hearts, very memorable in our minds, as Daniel is brought uh, into the king's court uh, in the first four chapters, King Nebuchadnezzar, in chapter 5 under King Belshazzar, and now here in chapter 6, Babylon has faded away, as the Lord had promised would happen. And now a new kingdom, the kingdom of the Medes and the Persians, uh, has now taken over as the world power in that area. And a new king is on the throne. I always say Darius, but every time I listen to somebody else say it's Darius, so it's probably Darius. But we'll see. I might go back and forth, just letting you know. But now Darius is on the throne, and a great threat comes to Daniel. And the question of whether he will continue... After all of these years, remember he was brought into exile when he was just a teen. Now he's likely in his 80s. And so will Daniel continue to the end? Is his faith strong enough to bring him to the end, even as this final threat that we read of comes against him? So Daniel chapter 6, before we read though, let me pray that God might bless his word to us. Father, thank you for your word as it records for us the mighty deeds of Christ done long ago even the ways in which he inspired his servants, even servants like Daniel, to live for him and his kingdom, and to not to be caught up in the kingdoms of this world that are passing away, but to have his mind fixed upon that eternal kingdom, symbolized by that stone cut out by no human hand, the kingdom that Christ brought when he came the first time, and the kingdom that Christ will bring in its fullness when he comes again. And so, Father, may as we reflect upon this history of your redemption, May our minds be, be set upon Christ, even as Daniel's was. May we look to him as the king, the king whom we love, the king whom we desire to glorify. And may we then also be steadfast as our eyes are fixed upon him. May your word accomplish these things in us, strengthening our faith by the power of your Holy Spirit at work in us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Daniel chapter 6, beginning at verse 1, we'll read the whole chapter. This is the holy and inspired word of God. It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps to be throughout the whole kingdom, and over them three high officials of whom Daniel was one to whom these satraps should give account so that the king might suffer no loss. Then this Daniel became distinguished above all the other high officials and satraps, Because an excellent spirit was in him, and the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. 
Then the high officials and the satraps sought to find a ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom, but they could find no ground for complaint or any fault, because he was faithful and no error or fault was found in him. Then these men said, We shall not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. Then these high officials and the satraps came by agreement to the king and said, O King Darius, live forever. All the high officials of the kingdom, the prefects and the satraps, the counselors and the governors are agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an injunction that whoever makes petition to any god or man for 30 days except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. Now, O king, establish the injunction and sign the document so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. Therefore, King Darius, or Darius, signed the document and injunction. When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. Then these men came by agreement and found Daniel making petition and plea before his God. Then they came near and said before the king concerning the injunction, O king, did you not sign an injunction that anyone who makes petition to any god or man within thirty days except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions? The king answered and said, The thing stands fast according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be revoked. Then they answered and said before the king, Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, Pays no attention to you, O king, or the injunction you have signed, but makes his petition three times a day. Then the king, when he heard these words, was much distressed and set his mind to deliver Daniel. And he labored till the sun went down to rescue him. Then these men came by agreement to the king and said to the king, Know, O king, that it is a law of the Medes and Persians that no injunction or ordinance that the king establishes can be changed." Then the king commanded, and Daniel was brought and cast into the den of lions. The king declared to Daniel, May your God, whom you serve, continually deliver you. And a stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet and with the signet of his lords, that nothing might be changed concerning Daniel. Then the king went to his palace and spent the night fasting. No diversions were brought to him, and sleep fled from him. Then at break of day, the king arose and went in haste to the den of lions. As he came near to the den where Daniel was, he cried out in a tone of anguish. The king declared to Daniel, O Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to deliver you from the lions? Then Daniel said to the king, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lion's mouth, and they have not harmed me, because I was found blameless before him. And also before you, O king, I have done no harm. Then the king was exceedingly glad and commanded that Daniel be taken up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den, and no kind of harm was found on him, because he had trusted in his God. And the king commanded, and those men who had maliciously accused Daniel were brought and cast into the den of lions, they, their children, and their wives. And before they reached the bottom of the den, the lions overpowered them and broke all their bones in pieces. Then King Darius wrote to all the peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, 
peace be multiplied to you. I make a decree that in all my royal dominion, people are to tremble and fear before the God of Daniel, for he is the living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed, and his dominion shall be to the end. He delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. He who has saved Daniel from the power of the lions. So this Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus, the Persian. So far from God's holy word. Dear congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, normally we expect that when we do good, that we will be praised for that. And when we do bad, that we will be punished. And yet it's often a shocking thing and a surprising thing that when those who do good are punished rather than praised. And the question is, when that happens, because the world is certainly full of injustices, and the world is certainly full of injustice against the people of God, who are often called to suffer at the hands of wicked men, in those times when good and godliness are punished, how are God's people to respond? How are you to respond in times of injustice, in times of suffering for the name of Christ, though you were doing good? Well, the book of Daniel, and especially here in chapter 6, provides us with the answer uh, to that. And as we dive into this chapter, we're going to do so under four points. First, the serpent. Secondly, the servant. Thirdly, the Savior. And then fourthly, the saints. So the serpent, the servant, the Savior, and the saints. Especially in our fourth point, as we think about ourselves and what we're called to in light of this chapter, will be really answer our opening question here. And so first, the serpent. The text opens uh, with King Darius uh, looking to establish his government. And so he, as it says there, set over his kingdom 120 satraps throughout his kingdom to provide order um, over his kingdom. And over those 120 satraps, he's to establish three high officials. And one of those three high officials was to be Daniel. And Daniel, even among the three high officials, shines and stands out, and the king is prepared to establish Daniel, as it says in verse 4, rather the end of verse 3, that the king planned to set Daniel over the whole kingdom. That's an important point in the Lord's providence, something that we're going to consider in a little bit, but keep that in, in mind. But why speak firstly of the serpent? Because as this is all taking place, these other high officials come together to conspire against Daniel. You might paraphrase what's taking place here, now saying, now the high officials and the satraps were more crafty than any other people in Babylon. And reflecting the very nature of the serpent long ago, one full of deceit. One who is cunning, one who is coming with his deceit and with his cunning in order to remove the worship of God from the face of the earth. As we're going to see, that's the main contention here. That's the main challenge at work here. The main challenge is not merely Daniel's safety in the midst of everything, but the real challenge here is regarding the glory of God and whether his name would continue to be worshipped even there in the courts of Babylon. And so the 
high officials and the satraps, inspired by the very spirit of the serpent, conspire against Daniel. And before you think this is uh, an odd way of putting things, the Belgic Confession reminds us, as a Reformed Confession, Article 12 tells us, that the devils and evil spirits are so corrupt that they are enemies of God and of everything good. They lie in wait for the church and every member of it like thieves, with all their power to destroy and spoil everything by their deceptions. That's the context in which Daniel lived and the context in which we live today. Those stronger than us, devils and evil spirits that lie in wait for the church and every member of it like thieves to destroy and to spoil. And so here in Daniel 6, the church, in a sense, is found not in its safe homeland, but in Babylon. And the, and the, the, the workings of the high officials and the satraps are the very workings of Satan himself to snuff out the worship of God, to destroy and spoil his church, even there. That if they could just get the king to sign this decree, they would at least prevent the worship of the one true and living God just for 30 days. Just for 30 days. And so they come before the king with this, with their deceits, might think of them as a kind of worm tongue coming before the king, speaking lies and deceits and getting and enchanting the king's ears with their words, flattering him, O king, live forever, O king. So they come before him and get him to sign this decree that for 30 days, no one is to make any petitions or prayers to any God or to any man other than the king for 30 days. And this law, as we read about over and over again throughout this chapter, is a law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be changed. The king is not one who stood over the law to change it however he willed, but rather one who himself, once having decreed something, could not change it. It was the believed, and I highlight the word believed, permanency of the law of the Medes and the Persians. The unchangeableness of the law and the Medes and the Persians. Not even the most powerful person in the empire could change the decree. Or at least from a human perspective. At least according to what their eyes could see. But one would, be, one would come, as we're going to see later, who can override even the law of the Medes and the Persians. And so as we think about the serpent-like deceits of the high officials and the satraps were reminded again that the main question here is, again, not Daniel's safety, but God's glory that is at stake here. And it's our man-centeredness, right, this, this, self, this looking to ourselves constantly, that as you read Daniel, our first thinking is, I'm Daniel and I need to be safe, and so how do I find safety here? Or how do I find deliverance? But the main thing that should tear at our hearts when we hear this decree go out is, will God's name still be worshipped and praised? Will God's glory still be looked to by even a people in exile? A people far from land, will his name be glorified? Will the irrevocable law of the Medes and the Persians truly prevent the worship of God on earth for 30 days? Will the threat of being cast into the den of lions hinder the worship of God on the earth for a mere 
30 days. So that's the challenge being presented by these serpent-inspired officials against Daniel. And so we move now to the servant, our second point. How is Daniel to respond to all of this? Well, Daniel, even as the satraps and high officials knew, he was a blameless man. Even though he, he, he had lived in Babylon for nearly 70 years, it's very likely, going there as a teen in his mid to late 80s at this point, right? He's, he's been there for some 70 years, and let, yet his record is spotless. They can find no fault in him. They can find nothing, to, no charges to bring against him. He is innocent in every sense of the word. True innocency belonged to Daniel before the eyes of the law of Babylon. And Daniel, in all of this then, as, as we mentioned earlier, the only way then that they could conspire against him, that they could overthrow his rise to receive the kingdom, would again to bring his religion into question, to make that the point of contention, the worship of his God. And so again, how is Daniel then, the servant of God in Babylon, to respond to the serpent's deceits and its cunning tactics against him? Well, we see three things here regarding Daniel's response. First, we see Daniel's faithfulness. Daniel's faithfulness. Daniel hears of this decree, and he continues to do what he has always done. Right? Daniel does not all of a sudden become religious, which we sometimes see around us even in our own day. It becomes convenient to be religious. It becomes a way of... of of uh, being revolutionary, of rejecting certain things. And now all of a sudden I'm religious. We saw this during COVID, of course, right? All of a sudden I have religious conscientious objections to things when I've had no religious conscientious objection to anything in the past. But now, right? But for Daniel, religion wasn't a means to an end, but rather religion was for Daniel the very end of his life. Daniel reflected the very truth of the first question and answer of the Westminster Shorter Catechism. What is the chief end of man? To glorify God and to enjoy him forever. That was the end for which Daniel lived. That was his chief purpose in life. And so rather than now becoming religious, Daniel remains faithful, persisted in what he has always done, which was simply to pray. And it's kind of wonderful the way Daniel's spirituality is spoken to us here in a kind of very matter-of-fact way. We can often think of being spiritual in some I mean, lofty terms and whatnot, but this, the, Daniel's spirituality is simply referred to by the fact that he was a man who prayed. That's all. That's all that we're told. That he got three day in, uh, into his room on his knees, window open, looking toward Jerusalem, and prayed three times a day. Daniel is simply reflecting the image of God as you, in, in whose image he was created. Daniel knew that as the image of God, he was disposed for communion with God, that he was created in his very nature to, a, to, to look to God. And so he continues to do so in his faithfulness. Jesus had said that we're to render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and certainly Daniel did that very well. It's why he was promoted. And what belonged to Caesar, Daniel rendered to Caesar in obedience to the command of his God. And he is also then to render to God the things that are God's, and that includes prayer. 
And so he continues to render to God what belongs to him. And here, Daniel's faithfulness then is highlighted. Secondly, we see Daniel's heavenly mindedness. Daniel's heavenly mindedness. And I mentioned this earlier, but one of the most fascinating elements of this story that took place in the providence of God orchestrating all the events here is that all of this takes place on the verge of Daniel about to receive the whole kingdom. Darius was about to set him over the entire kingdom, as the end of verse 3 tells us. And Daniel, all he needed to do, right, he could have begun to reason to himself, all right, I'm about to be set over the whole kingdom. It's a mere 30 days. Let me just keep my window closed. It's a mere 30 days. Let me just keep my mouth shut. Nobody needs to know who I'm praying to. I'll just keep my prayers in my head. It's a mere 30 days. And think what I could do for the kingdom when I'm set over it. Think what I could do for the name of God if I'm set over the kingdom. No. Because Daniel knew that he was not sent into Babylon as a power play from the God of heaven. As if God needed a spy in there to um, go up the ranks and take over Babylon and annex it to the kingdom of heaven. That sounds so silly to even think that would be true of Daniel. No, Daniel did not confuse the kingdom of Babylon and of the world with the kingdom of heaven. Rather, Daniel was heavenly minded. And though the entire kingdom of Babylon be put before him on a silver platter, he slaps it out of their hands and says, no, I'm going to pray to the God of heaven because his kingdom is the one that I am a citizen of, not the kingdom of Babylon. Such reasoning that would say, well, it would be expedient towards the ends of advancing the kingdom of God if you were in charge. Such reasoning comes from hell. And it comes from Satan. And I say that because it's the very temptation Satan brings before Jesus. I'll give you all the kingdoms. You want them? Here you go. Bow down before me and worship me. No, Daniel, even as he points us to our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, had his mind fixed upon a heavenly kingdom. He knew that he was in Babylon, but he was not of Babylon. He was in the world, but not of the world. He was a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. And God had revealed already time and time again that the kingdom of Babylon, the kingdom of the Medes and the Persians, the kingdoms of this world will fade away into the dustbin of history. It's God's kingdom that is eternal. It's God's kingdom that will last It's why it says in the book of Hebrews that by faith, that through faith they conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions. And what is faith? The conviction of things not seen. Daniel's mind was fixed upon the heavenly kingdom, the kingdom he knew was coming. God promised it. The kingdom symbolized by that, by that stone cut out by no human hand who would come and crush the kingdoms of this world and one day establish itself as a great mountain over the whole face of the earth. 
Daniel knew that the growth of that mountain would not come through expediency, through giving in to the lies and temptations of the serpent, by power plays in Babylon, by annexing Babylon, by making it a theocracy. No, rather Daniel knew that the kingdom would come in a supernatural way, in a way unexpected, as a stone cut out by no human hand. And the kingdom did come in an unexpected way. With its glory hidden, the Lord Jesus Christ, the king of that kingdom, comes and preaches that the kingdom is near. And so the servant Daniel is one who is faithful and he is heavenly minded. And we see this not only in terms of the author of Hebrews reflecting on Daniel, speaking of his faith, by which he stopped the mouths of lions. But we also see this in the fact that when Daniel prayed, he prayed with his window opened toward Jerusalem. You might say, well, that sounds earthly minded. Well, think about it. In Jerusalem was the temple where God had taken up residence among his people. And when God had taken up residence among his people in the temple, Solomon offers up a prayer uh, before God uh, and to dedicate uh, this temple. You can turn with me or listen to this, but in 1 Kings chapter 8, we read about this prayer that comes into play here in Daniel. In 1 Kings chapter 8, Solomon again is praying in dedication of God's temple. And he prays this. After the temple has been built, he says, But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house, this temple that I have built. Yet have regard to the prayer of your servant and to his plea, O Lord my God, listening to the cry and to the prayer that your servant prays before you this day, that your eyes may be open night and day toward this house, the place of which you have said, My name shall be there, that you may listen to the prayer that your servant offers toward this place. And listen to the plea of your servant and of your people Israel when they pray toward this place. And notice, and listen in heaven, your dwelling place. And when you hear, forgive. You see, Daniel is facing towards Jerusalem, not because of his earthly mindedness, but because of his heavenly mindedness. He knew all along that the temple could never house the God who made the heavens and the earth. Heaven was his dwelling place, and even that could not contain him. And yet, as Solomon prayed, so Daniel takes up the fact that those who look there to his dwelling place, God will hear and he will answer his prayers for forgiveness. Now, we don't know exactly what Daniel prayed, but we do later in Daniel chapter 9 hear of Daniel interceding on behalf of the sin of the people of Israel. You might wonder that Daniel himself, as no one who knew himself innocent in the eyes of the law of the Medes and the Persians, and yet he also recognized that he was a part of a people full of sin and guilt, as he's going to confess it later in chapter 9. And though himself innocent in the eyes of the law, yet one who will go and endure its curse and endure its judgment. And we'll say more about that uh, come later as well. But notice again, 
as he prays toward Jerusalem, Daniel is exercising his heavenly mindedness and trusts in his God to answer him from heaven. In many ways, as Daniel prayed toward Jerusalem, he prayed asking for the Christ, for the deliverer, for the Savior, the one who would come from heaven to deliver and redeem his people. So Daniel showed faithfulness. He showed heavenly mindedness. And rather than reasoning that soon he would be made uh, a king over all the kingdom, instead he pursued the glory of God and endured the punishment that came. He was not of Babylon, but he was in Babylon. Even as Jesus prays in John 17 of his people, of you, they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. And as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. You are not of this world, just as Daniel was not of Babylon. And therefore you too are to refuse the glories of this world, though they be offered to you on a silver platter, because your eyes are fixed on a different world, a heavenly world, a heavenly country that is yours. And yet God has sent you, just as he sent Daniel into this world, not to, as a power play, to gain the culture, win the culture wars, but to bear faithful witness in whatever capacity that means. Now, yes, as you bear faithful witness, the Lord at times blesses that. And it spreads and it changes things. Praise God for that. But even at times, just like Daniel, you bear faithful witness and what is before you is a den of lions. Either way, you're sent here to bear faithful witness to the God of heaven. To the fact that your help comes not from any earthly place, but from the God in heaven. And so we've seen Daniel's faithfulness as a servant, Daniel's heavenly mindedness. And thirdly, and this is something I think is actually the most... um, Wonderful uh, in my reading of this text, and something that jumped off the page. You know, at times, silence can be deafening, right? The sound of silence can be very, very loud. And if you know, did you notice something as we read through this passage? The decree goes out. Daniel goes down on his knees and prays. The, the, the satraps come, accuse him before Darius. Daniel is taken and thrown into a den of lions. Not once did Daniel open his mouth. Not only do we see Daniel's faithfulness, his heavenly mindedness, but, but from those two previous things, we also see Daniel's silence. Daniel is sentenced to death, and he opened not his mouth. If you look back at the text, there's not a single quotation from Daniel until after he comes and is delivered. Daniel is facing unjust accusations. Daniel is facing something that's completely unfair at the cost of his very life. And he's silent. He opens not his mouth. He does not feel the need to defend himself. He does not feel the need to plead his case or his cause. He is brought unjustly on these charges of death, and he is quiet. And remember we said earlier in previous sermons, the name Daniel means 
God is my judge. Not the law of the Medes and the Persians. And so Daniel remembered that. You might ask the question for, your own, for yourself, right? The moment I'm facing some type, something that's unfair, even nothing that's even at the cost of my life, but even just something unfair where I have some consequences for it, right? I might say, well, um, may, you know, this, this, is, this, is, this is unfair on the Lord's part. And so how can I have strength then not to feel the need to plead my own cause and not to need to, to defend myself from every accusation? Well, like Daniel, he remembered God's word that God is the judge of all the earth. And he remembered God's promise, I will be your God. And therefore he rested in the fact that God would take his cause, Daniel's cause, into his own hands. And whether in life or in death, he would bring justice upon Daniel, his servant. He remembered God's word. He remembered his covenant promise. It's why he prayed towards Jerusalem. Daniel knew that God was his judge. He also remembered Nebuchadnezzar's dream. That the kingdom would come not through Daniel's efforts, as if Daniel needed to be there. As if Daniel, if Daniel was out of the picture in Babylon, that the kingdom would not come. Daniel knew, as a servant of the Lord, that, that though he died, God's purposes would continue. Because he knew from Nebuchadnezzar's dream that the kingdom would come. That God would send his kingdom like a stone cut out by no human hand. And so Daniel, facing these unjust accusations, even as his life is on the line before him, he opens not his mouth. And in this way, Daniel points us forward to another servant who would open not his mouth, though he suffered unjustly. Isaiah speaks of this servant in Isaiah 53. He says this regarding this suffering servant. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Goes on. That he was as one from whom men hid their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs. He carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we are like sheep that have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all, right? He is one, there's one more verse to read that's important here, but he is one, as we see, who is bearing the sins of another. He is bearing that which is not his own and enduring the, pun, the, punish, the penalty and the punishment that he does not deserve, and yet he is stricken and afflicted. And it goes on to say, as he bears the iniquities and the sins that are not his own, it says, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that is before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. How did he do this? 
like Daniel, he entrusted himself and his cause and his life to his God. And so too, we as the people of God today are to entrust ourselves to God. No matter the unjust consequences that come before us for the worship of his, of his name, for rendering to him the things that belong to him. Yes, there are times where we can exercise our rights, but there are also times to be quiet and silent, all for the glory of God. Just like Daniel, he knew that he was placed in Babylon to glorify God. So the Christ was brought to this earth as a suffering servant to bring glory to God. And so his church is here, so you are here to bring glory to God. That's our highest joy. And that is what we then pursue in trusting ourselves and the consequences to God. He will vindicate us, whether in this life or in the next, even as he will vindicate his servant Daniel here. Because as Daniel is brought before or into the den of lions, and often I think of the book with the children's lions on, and I often in my head, because I've seen that so many times, I just think, oh, I almost have cartoon lions in my head when Daniel gets thrown into the den. But these are ferocious lions, likely starved, that they might be so hungry that they might eat the first thing that has blood that they see. And Daniel is thrown into this den. Stone is rolled in front of it. It's sealed with the king's signet. And Darius can only but say, may your God deliver you. The next morning, Darius runs to the tomb, you could say, rolls the stone away, calls out for Daniel, servant of the living God. Has your God delivered you? And Daniel emerges as from the dead. Yes, my God shut the mouth of the lions. His God vindicated him. Though the law of the Medes and the Persians seemed irrevocable and permanent, unchangeable, the true judge rendered his verdict, and Daniel was indeed innocent. And before the eyes of the kingdom of, of the Medes and the Persians, Daniel is vindicated. And his emergence from the, from the den of lions is like a kind of resurrection. And we're probably not far off to see that because Daniel himself the very end of his, uh, of his book here, chapter 12, we'll get to this in some weeks. In Daniel chapter 12, he speaks of the vindication of God's people as a resurrection. Daniel chapter 12, verses 2 and 3, says, Many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. Daniel being cast into the lion's den, now emerging from that den unharmed, reminds us of the vindication that God has worked in the truly innocent one, the Lord Jesus Christ. He's mentioned earlier that he was bearing not his own sins, but the sins of others, even our sins and all who have trusted and believed upon the Lord Jesus Christ. And Christ himself went into the grave. He went into the den of lions. And the reason Daniel is able to emerge unharmed, and the reason we ourselves can confess that death has lost its sting, is because the fangs of death bit into another. 
The fangs of death bit into our Savior. He died. He was torn to pieces that Daniel and all his people might come from the grave unharmed. That is the wonderful news proclaimed to the people of God through this history of Daniel, through the providence of God. And so not only do we then think about the servants, the point here is not to go be like Daniel, but then our third point, right, as we've been talking about already, the Savior. It's Christ who stopped the mouth of the lions there in Daniel's time, but also ultimately by his own death, as again the the fangs of death bit into him. Christ is the one who exemplified true faithfulness to the Father. He came to do his Father's will, as he says over and over again, until on the cross, as he hung there, bloodied and beaten, he says, it is finished. What was finished? The work of God that he had given him to do. Christ, Christ's, the Spirit of Christ inspired Daniel's own faithfulness. It was Christ who exemplified heavenly-mindedness like Daniel as well. As he's brought before Pilate, and though he opens not his mouth, later he says to him, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from the world. Like Daniel was in Babylon, but not of Babylon, so Jesus was in the world, but not of the world. He belonged to a heavenly kingdom. And so to us as people, we belong not to the kingdoms of this world, but to the kingdom of heaven. We belong to our king who is reigning there, the Lord Jesus Christ. And he has sent us into this world then to bear faithful witness. Again, it's the spirit of Christ inspiring heavenly mindedness in Daniel and in us even today. And also it is Christ who, like Daniel, was silent. 1 Peter chapter 2 says this, What credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you are straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Christ, silent before his accuser, silent before the, uh, the Jewish officials, silent before Pilate. Because he entrusted himself to his God. And as Daniel was vindicated, so too was the Son of God vindicated on the third day when he rose again, that beautiful, wonderful Easter morning, to resurrection and new life. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, Peter says. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. The resurrection of Christ was his vindication. And when he comes again, he will vindicate his glory before the eyes of this world that, uh, from whose eyes today it is hidden. And he will vindicate his people as well. And so not only do we, do we then think about the servant Daniel 
and the Savior Christ, but also the saints, you and I, the people of God. Like Daniel, we too are called to faithfulness, to follow God, to render to God the things that are God's, no matter the consequences in this life. Like Daniel, we are called then with the Spirit of Christ in us to have a heavenly mindedness, knowing ourselves not to be of this world, but to be of the kingdom of heaven. And yet ourselves sent in this world that we might bear faithful witness to the glories of the kingdom of heaven. That we might bear faithful witness to that which is otherwise unseen. This is how the church conquers, with the spirit of Christ at work in us, even as it was at work in Daniel. Revelation chapter 12, verse 10 and 11 provides a kind of summary in terms of the ethic, how we ought to live in light of the stories of Daniel 6 and all of Daniel. It says there in Revelation 12, I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before God. And they have conquered, how? And they have conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto death. The blood of the lamb, the word of our testimony, bearing witness to those things and loving not our lives even unto death. So was the spirit of Daniel. So is the spirit at work in his church in us as we have the mind of Christ. And so too we, like Daniel, can be silent, for we have the Spirit of Christ at work in us. We know that our vindication will come from God, and we can entrust ourselves wholly to Him. The Apostle Paul tells us in Colossians 3 that when Christ, who is your life, appears, and when He comes again, then also you will appear with Him in glory. Glory is always a visible thing. It's a brightness that shines forth, makes public the greatness of God. And so too, our cause that we live for and even die for today will be vindicated before the eyes of the world as the very cause of the Son of God. And though it is spurned and though it is hated and though it is persecuted, yet then it will be vindicated. That is where our hope is found. When though the world rages against the gospel as it spreads throughout the earth, and opposition grows greater and greater until, as the Apostle Paul speaks of, the man of lawlessness appears, one who would fight against the people of God and seek to destroy. A great reversal will take place when Christ comes again. A kind of resurrection. Everybody wants to put adjectives after the word eschatology. I think the most appropriate would be an eschatology of reversal, where God, at the end of the age, against all seeming odds, comes again, sends his son, and vindicates the glory of his name in the eyes of the world. This was Paul's hope, the Apostle Paul, and we'll come to a conclusion here. In 2 Timothy, Paul is coming to the end of his life, and he's writing this very personal uh, letter, though he knew it would be read to the churches, but he writes this personal letter uh, to Timothy. And in this letter, he uh, makes mention of his current circumstances at the end. Something we might overlook. But notice what he says. He says, Do your best to come to me soon, he writing to Timothy. For Demas, in love with this present world, 
and earthly mindedness, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Cretans has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. Luke alone is with me. Paul's abandoned at the end of his life. What a glorious point to be at, right? The great apostle Paul abandoned. After all of his labors, after all of his ministry, after all of his faithful witness to Christ and his gospel, Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me for ministry. Tychicus I have sent to Ephesus. When you come, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas, also the books, a good uh, proof text for large libraries, and above all, the parchments. Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Again, he entrusts himself to the Lord. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. He goes on, Beware of him, that's Alexander the coppersmith, for he strongly opposed our message. At my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against me. What circumstances that the Apostle Paul is enduring? But, he says, but the Lord stood by me and strengthened me so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed. That was his desire, that the message would be proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Paul knew, as a concluding point here, Paul knew that God would reverse his circumstances because he knew and believed in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The one who was in the pit of death itself was raised to newness of life. This is the glory of the gospel of great reversals. And Daniel testifies to this reality as he emerges from the lion's den. Christ testifies to this reality as he emerged from the grave. And the church will testify to this reality unto the ages when Christ comes again and we appear with him in glory, in bodies raised, immortal, invisible, all to the praise of our great and glorious God. To him alone belongs glory. Amen. Our Heavenly Father, what a wonderful way in which you orchestrated all the events surrounding Daniel, even in his old age, even in his old age testifying to the glory that is not of this world, but the glory of a kingdom that was to come. Father, we thank you that now all the more that kingdom has come, that Jesus has brought that kingdom near. And though it today is hidden from the eyes of the world, yet a people of that kingdom are gathered in this world, even us here today as your church. Father, we pray that the gospel of that kingdom would advance throughout this earth, the message would be proclaimed, and that we would endure all things, loving not even our lives unto death, all for the sake of the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony. May we bear faithful witness to Christ and his glories. May we have a heavenly mindedness about us. And may we too entrust ourselves wholly to you as the judge of all the earth, as the one who will do right. We know that our vindication comes from you and from you alone. And so may we not seek the approval of this world, 
but only your approval, the approval of our Lord and King, that one day he might say to us, good, well done, good and faithful servant. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.